The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like for you to take your Bibles and uh, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, this evening, of course, is our time to come to the Lord's table. And as I always say, this is one of the most blessed times of worship that we have in the church. And I think about how that God is good to us in so many ways. And yet I can't think of anything better than he's done when he made us partakers in the life of Christ by placing us into the church, which is his body. Uh, there, there's just no way that we could be more intimate with God than to be considered to be a part of his body. That Christ became incarnate for this, for this very purpose, that we could relate to God in that way. And so I'm reminded of, of scriptures that, that speak of the spiritual nature of the communion that we have with his body. For instance, in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, it says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. 1 Corinthians 12:27 Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And then especially this verse in Ephesians chapter 5 which says for we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And that's just a really a tremendous verse that Christ considers us to be as close as his flesh and his bones. And the supper that we partake of tonight is is about that closeness. It's, it's very unique in its representation that we partake in Christ's flesh and his blood as we fellowship in the supper. Now, I want that really to be the theme of the message tonight, that the reason that you and I sit in this church on, on this evening is because we are unified in one body. And there's this close fellowship between us because we are in the same body. And that closeness is one of the reasons that I don't teach and believe the universal church, nor that Christians of all flavors should be admitted to this supper as this church partakes of it, because we have a special closeness between us as this particular body in this particular place. So this evening I want to look here in the book of Philippians and at some of the particulars of fellowship that we have because of the gospel of Christ. And in the salutation of, of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, he writes in chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, number three, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have in my heart, I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. Now the key connector for Paul's fellowship with the Philippian church is the gospel. Now his thought here is not about the Lord's Supper. That's not what he's talking about. But we certainly do know that the Supper is representative of the gospel. The Supper speaks of the death of Christ, is, and uh, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that we are to observe the supper as a memorial of Christ's death until he comes. And the very fact that he's coming, of course, tells us that he's alive. 
He's coming back because he's alive. And so the supper is also a definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Paul, his death, burial, and his resurrection. And we see that as, and we know about that as we partake of the supper tonight. So the gospel is the thing that's the key to Paul's community with the Philippian church. He didn't have hardly anything in common with them except the gospel itself. I mean, the only things that he had in common with them was he was human and they were human. But in other ways, he was nothing at all like them. When he wrote to them, he was a prisoner and they were free. He was a Jew. They were Gentiles. He was a godly man who was well-versed in Scripture, was always monotheistic in his teaching and belief. While their pagans who had just come out of their polyistic paganism, they knew nothing at all about the Scriptures, extremely wicked in the way that they lived. So they were nothing at all like the Apostle Paul. But they did have this common bond. Once they had believed in Christ, the most important one, the one that is so unique that it draws very different people together, they could relate to one another through the gospel. So they were all partakers of Christ and were members of the body of Christ, of his flesh and of his bones. And so Paul says to them, I can fellowship with you because of the gospel. And quite frankly, again, that's the only reason that he would desire fellowship with them. The only reason that he's far away from his home in a place like Philippi was because of the gospel of Christ. The only reason that he went as a missionary and was with them was because of the gospel. So we're brought together here, even though we are very different on many different levels, our commonality is this one thing, we are one in the gospel. And the gospel cuts across all of our, all of our social ties, all our economic levels, all the social, uh, racial differences, all the ethnic differences, national differences. And so people all across the world are bonded together by the gospel, especially those who are members of a particular body of Jesus Christ in a location like we are here right in Rohnert Park. Now, two weeks ago, when we had, uh, about two weeks ago, we had the Pioneer Camp out. Uh, on Wednesday evening, this point was driven home to me, so much so that uh, on the very next day, I wrote most of this sermon that I'm going to give you tonight. And I was thinking about this very thing, that there we were sitting in a circle in, in this clearing on a hot summer night, listening to a message which is part of the gospel. I mean, any time that you open the scriptures and you begin to read things there about, about either Christ or the church or just anything that you read in the Bible that, that talks to us about God and who he is and who Christ is, you're, you're encompassing things that are part of the gospel. So Brother Tabor on that night was talking about family issues, talking about dads and so forth. That's also part of the gospel of Christ. And so I was thinking as we were sitting there that we're just very, very different people, that most of us would not be friends. Most of us, well, of course, we wouldn't know each other, but uh, many of us would not be friends. I mean, there's scarcely two or three people in our church that even work in the same place. And that might be a very serious commentary on evangelistic skills, but that happens to be true. So what is it that brings us all together? Well, the thing that binds us together is the gospel. George Bernard Shaw said that England and America are two countries that are separated by common language. So even our language doesn't bring us together. Um, when Joseph was here, half the time I didn't understand half what he was saying. And uh, he calls me on the phone. I still a lot of times I don't understand what he's saying. When Brother Mongo comes next week, or next month rather, 
He will be speaking English, but you'll never know it, some of you. And you'll say, what in the world is he talking about? What did he say? And I have to take a double take a lot of times when I listen to him. So even that, that common language, uh, oh, we speak English, that's not enough really, really to bring us together. But the gospel is the thing that cuts through all those differences that are between us. The gospel is what really brings us together because we are members of Christ, of his flesh and his bones. In other words, we are part of the same body. That's our commonality. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 8, 11, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, the redeemed in heaven, we see a, uh, that the redeemed in heaven captured there in that scripture where it says they're singing and they say, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so right there in heaven, it's saying the gospel unifies very diverse people. We fellowship because of the gospel. This is why Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Now this evening what I'd like to do is just share some points with you, not very long, uh, hopefully, just some points for you about the fellowship of believers. Now I'll start with this one, that we have fellowship in election, or maybe I should say by our election. And, and, I, and I don't want to scare you with the very first point, uh, but we fellowship in the gospel. We are fellowshipping with each other because of God's election. I'm saved and you're saved for only one reason, that God has chosen it to be so. I don't have anything that I can look at in me. You don't have anything to look at in you. There's nothing that God saw in any of us why he should choose us, except for this one thing, that was the pleasure of his own will. We sit here and we fellowship together because God has made it so. That's his will and his purpose. He has made us participants in his grace. And I don't think I have to go into much explanation of when that happened. You, already, you know that very well from listening to me for these almost 13 years. You know what we believe about that. That before God created the very first thing on the earth, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ for salvation. So God didn't look forward in time and see anything to base that decision upon. He didn't look down and see that there, oh, there's some good people that I need to choose. The scripture says, before we'd done anything that was good or evil, God decided to choose us. So there wasn't anything that we did that figured into his plan. It's all because of a covenant that God the Son or God the Father made with God the Son that before the world ever began... They said some of the human race would be given to the Son and Jesus would come and give his life for them to save them from their sins. And so, you know that we teach that Jesus did not come to this earth to be a potential Savior for anyone. He is a real Savior for his people. And every last one of them that's been given to the Father, uh, or given to him by the Father, will never fail to be redeemed. So we're drawn together into this common bond by uh, a decision that was made by God and not by anything that we've done. So we're made brothers and sisters in Christ by the sovereign will and determination of God alone. So you fellowship with me, I fellowship with you, and every other believer around the world 
all of that, it's just based, it is based in God's sovereign, immutable decree that he made before the foundation of the world. But I want to tell you this, our election in Christ is not our salvation. That's what comes next, that we have fellowship in salvation. Now the first is the decree of election in the grace of God. That happened before the foundation of the world. And then we have salvation that takes place in time. We have fellowship and salvation because in time, God drew us. The Holy Spirit drew us through the preaching of the gospel of Christ and we're brought to faith in Christ. And understand this very well, that it is a common faith. We are all believers by a common faith. So the same gospel that saved me is the same gospel that saved you. There aren't multiple ways of salvation. And no matter what culture that you're from, no matter the socioeconomic background, no matter your race, all are brought to the Father by a common faith. Well, you know there are many people that teach that's not true. And they say, well, uh, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You just got to have faith in something. Have a sincere faith in whatever it is you believe in, whatever God it might be that you believe in, and then you'll be saved. You'll be all right. And there are many evangelicals that actually teach that. I mean, we have evangelists like, like, uh, like Billy Graham who teaches that the Jews don't actually have to believe in Christ. I mean, if they strongly believe, you know, that uh, who God is and those kinds of things, that they'll be saved. Well, when you say things like that, you betray the gospel that you claim to preach. I think the reason that people don't understand this is because they don't understand who gives salvation. Now, obviously, they think God gives salvation, but I'm not just talking about faith in God itself. I'm talking about how God begins the work of salvation. Salvation is begun by a work of the Holy Spirit when he speaks to a person beneath his consciousness and then regenerates him so that he's able to have faith in Christ. And that regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is for only one purpose, and that is to bring a person to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit's not divided, so he's not going to regenerate someone so they can believe in Islam sincerely, or that they can believe in Judaism sincerely, or Buddhism sincerely. He doesn't regenerate people for that. He regenerates them for faith in Christ. Now, nobody's saved without regeneration, and regeneration always results in repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And so, if you get that order mixed up, you get repentance and faith before regeneration, then you leave the door open for a man-made salvation. And that's what all false religions believe. Only regeneration in order to repentance and faith make sure that God is the one who gets all the credit for our salvation and God's the one who's always in control. And so if God is in control, always in control, then we're going to have a common salvation. We have fellowship uh, in the salvation of Christ. We don't have anything in common with Islam and with Judaism or any other religion. And if we're not united by faith in Christ, then we're never going to be at peace with God. And we're never going to be at peace with each other. Because that's where it comes. That's why we, have, we do have peace with each other. Because we are unified in this common faith. So you and I are very different from one another. But we can enjoy one another and we can love one another. Because we are one in Christ. Now thirdly, and I'm just giving you a few things here. Thirdly is that we have fellowship in supplication. I mean, what do we do every time that we come into church service? 
we come into the building and we worship God and we have fellowship in prayer and thanksgiving and we supplicate God for our needs and then we thank God when He responds to those needs. Now, a few weeks ago I was talking about how in the armed services um, that they have ordered chaplains that they can't pray publicly in Jesus' name. And I was talking about a, a chaplain who was court-martialed because he prayed in Jesus' name in a public setting. Now, he, he was determined to pray by the name of the person, the only person that God hears any prayer. But the government says, no, you can't, you can't do that. It has to be that when you pray, I mean, the leaders encourage generic prayer so that when you pray, everybody can have the feeling that their God is being addressed. And that's supposed to unify us? All that's done is just spread us out among many different gods. We, we have unity when we pray all to the same God, when our, when our faith is in Jesus Christ. So we don't, we don't get unity through generic prayers. They don't unite us, they divide us. We don't have anything in common with terrorists, I hope. And uh, their God is not our God. Now, you and I are here because of Jesus Christ. We, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, Christ because we recognize He's the one who's the ruler of heaven and earth. That's the basis of our fellowship. So we can enjoy one another's company because of the common bond of prayer. And, and you experience that, I hope, if you've been doing the prayer meetings that the church has, if you sit in a Sunday night prayer meeting over here before church starts, or uh, men who come to the men's prayer meeting on Saturday morning, or if you come to the church on a Wednesday night when we're having an all-church prayer meeting, you just sit and listen for a few minutes at what others are saying as they pray to God. You listen to them as they pour out their heart to God. And don't you feel, don't you really feel something in common with them? I mean, don't you feel the same burdens that they feel? Don't you feel the same joys that they express or the same sorrows that they express? That's part of the fellowship this grace of fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, fourthly, we have fellowship in affection. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. On 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul interrupted himself when he was talking about spiritual gifts, and he taught that grace is greater than all the gifts. And particularly... This grace of love is better than all the gifts that God can give. Because without love, everything amounts to zero. If love is missing, we don't have any fellowship. I mean, we can meet together, we can sing together, we can pray together. But without love, we're, we're all just like a, a, an island to ourselves with no connection at all. Every Sunday night, we sing the song at closing. We won't do it tonight, but any time that we're not having the Lord's Supper, we sing, bind us together Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. And then we end that with bind us together in love. Love permits the closeness of fellowship. Without love, we're self-indulgent. We are selfish without love. Love is not going to permit me to take advantage of you or you to take advantage of me. I'm not going to do any harm to any other Christian, any other brother and sister in Christ because of love. Uh, Jesus said, love God and love each other. And he said, those are the two greatest commandments. Why are they such great commandments? Because if you love somebody, you're not going to kill them. If you love somebody, you're not going to steal from them. If you love them, you're not going to lie to them. 
And so he says, love, that's, that's the greatest commandment. Love God, love your fellow man. We don't learn that from secular sources. You, you don't find that out on the TV or the movies. You're not going to get that from social media. And the reason that you don't, because that impersonal interaction le- allows you to lie. It allows you to say anything you want to say, be anybody you want to be. You're not going to find this kind of love except in the fellowship of believers in the body of Jesus Christ. It happens only to those who themselves have been drawn with cords of everlasting love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll love one another. And that's, that's the same love that knits together the Father and the Son. We experience that same kind of love. It unites us to him and each other. So do you understand what that means? It means we can have fellowship with each other, the same kind of fellowship that God has with his Son. Nobody knows that but people who are believers in Jesus Christ. Nobody can experience that that kind of love except those who are believers. Now, fifthly, we have fellowship in contribution. And I think that we could look at contribution in two ways. First, that uh, God has placed each of us into the body of Christ. And if you are uh, in the church, you are a part of the body. And Paul compared how the, uh, the church as a body works like the human body works, like the human body. I mean, there are many different parts to the body, and each part contributes to the effort of the whole. I was thinking about that as I, you know, I was writing this message, that, um, you know, everything has to work together. As I'm sitting there typing things out and getting notes down on the computer and things like that, and uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I, ha- I have to get a signal from my brain that goes to the other parts that makes all that work. And sometimes the signal isn't all that good because this little finger gets a huge workout on the backspace key uh, because I can't type so well. Uh, but everything has to work together. I mean, all parts have to contribute to get what I want from my mind to the computer, make it all like it's supposed to be. For me to speak and everything else, everything has to work together. And that's the way it is with the body of Christ. Uh, you have to have contribution from everybody. So if I got up here and I preached the sermon, I led the singing, I played the instruments, I, I took up the offering, I taught the Sunday school class, and I did the bulletins and all of that, well, that's not very good for all the rest of you, is it? That's not much contribution from you. So God hasn't designed the church that way. He designs the church so that everybody has a part in their particular area. And, and we'll get to that on a, in our Wednesday evening um, studies and we talk about spiritual gifts, how that God has blended his body together perfectly so that all the work gets done. So everybody gets to contribute and everybody then shares in the blessing. And I can promise you that church is a blessing that you don't want to miss. You want to be a part of that. Outsiders really don't have a clue as to why we do what we do and why we enjoy it so much. You come to church on, on Sunday morning, your neighbor doesn't understand why you do that. He doesn't understand why you go to church and listen to my boring sermons. And he can go to the country club and sit and have a beer and enjoy himself. That doesn't seem like equal things. You listen to me and you could be sitting there having a beer and enjoying yourself in that way. That doesn't sound equal at all. It sounds very unequal to the world. But we know something different about this. For instance, have you ever decided, I don't know if we have any golfers in here. Uh, I'm not a golfer, maybe somebody is. But have you ever decided to go play golf on Sunday or go to a ball game on Sunday? Did you feel like you were missing out on something? Did you feel like you were missing out on 
serving God perhaps and worshiping God when you did that? Did you ever feel that way? Well, I'll tell you something. If you never felt that way and you did it, then you need to check up on your spirituality. Because God wants us to contribute to the body. His body is... A Christian is only happy when he's involved in that contributing. So that's one type of contribution. But there's another, and you know I'm going to get to it. There's the contribution that we have to the many needs of others. For instance, your tithes and offerings, that, that enable, enables the church to meet needs of missionaries and keeping the building going on, keeping the ministry, for everybody to have a part of ministry here at Berean Baptist. Your tithes and offerings do that. But you might contribute in other ways also. Uh, maybe it is a monetary gift that you might give to another member who, who's having trouble. Or maybe it's that uh, you, you go to somebody and help somebody who's sick and you take them some food. Or when one of their loved ones has passed away, you, you kind of help them out and do things for him. And you see, it's not that you feel like you have to do those things. When you're in the body of Christ... These are things that you want to do. You get the privilege of doing that. So you don't consider that to be drudgery. And you know there's a good reason why you don't? Because Jesus said when you've done it to one of your fellow members, fellow, fellow members of the church and fellow Christians, he said, you have done it to me. And you say, well, how could we do it to him? Because you're members of his flesh and his bones, of his body. You are in the same body. So Jesus says in Matthew 25, Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. That's what you get when you know Jesus. We're members of his body. So we can fellowship in contribution. Now sixthly, we fellowship in proclamation. And that means that we all have a part in getting out the message of the gospel of Christ to those that are lost and dying in sin. Now let me tell you why I mentioned this. And I, and I need to make it very clear to, to all of you. And, and I'm going to run back over this again in the last part of Matthew when we get to uh, what's commonly called the Great Commission. And we talk about, when we, when we get to that, I'll talk about this more. But who is it that has received the commission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the simple answer to that, the correct answer is, that commission was given to the Lord's church. That there's no one who has the right to speak the message of Jesus Christ except his church. Now, listen to me closely, and I'll follow this up, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It seems like a very strange statement that I would say that, but you look at Scripture, and you try to find where Jesus gave any organization but the church the authority to what? Preach and baptize. No one has the authority to teach, preach, baptize, except the Lord's church. Now, that, that's a reason that we don't support parachurch organizations. God didn't give the responsibility of preaching to anybody's evangelistic association. That means he didn't give the Gideons the responsibility to preach. He didn't give it to Campus Crusade for Christ. He didn't give it to InterVarsity. He gave it to his church. That's the only one who has the commission to preach the gospel. Now, to make it real simple for you again, for all of these other organizations, if they are going to preach the gospel, then they should do it under the authority of the church, under the authority of the one who has the ability 
to give them authority to do it, to go out and say baptize. So this is why I teach and baptize. So this is why that when a missionary comes to us and he says, uh, you know, I'd like for you to support us, I always ask the question, what church are you from? And he says, well, I'm not really connected with the church. Then I would say, well, then we, we couldn't support that. Uh, we, we couldn't send you as a missionary because you need to be sent by a church. And then sometimes they'll tell me what church that they were sent by, and I still say, no thanks, uh, because it's not the right kind of a church. So we have fellowship in the proclamation only when we do it in the right way. When we come under the, under the authority of who has the authority to tell people to preach and baptize. And that's what Jesus transmitted to his disciples when he gave them the Great Commission. Uh, um, I'll make a point of this when we get to it again, that when you get to the 15th chapter of Matthew 28, it says he called the 11. He called the 11, and they met him in Galilee. Now, quite frankly, there were a lot of other people that were disciples in Galilee, and I think there were a lot of other people were there, but he specifically mentions the 11 in the giving of that commission. And you think, why? Because they are the first ones that he chose to be his church. He established his church with them. He gave them the commission to preach the gospel. And then that transmission of the gospel and the authority to baptize gets passed down through the ages, through the Lord's New Testament church. So nobody can just come up and say, well, I think it's my day to baptize. No, only the church has the authority to do that. The commission has to be carried out by the church. So what I want to get across to you then is that in the church, as being in the fellowship of the church, we have that privilege of participating in preaching the gospel. That's one of the things that God has given us as his church. So you get it when you're in the fellowship of believers, and, and so this is why Paul says to the Philippians, I thank God for your fellowship in the gospel. And, and he, he meant that they were fellow laborers proclaiming the message of the gospel in their city and that they supported him so he could tell it to other people. They were all fellowshipping around the gospel whose authority was passed to them by Jesus Christ. Now, seventhly, we have fellowship in separation. That seems like a really odd thing to say, that we have fellowship in separation. So let me explain to you what I mean there. Fellowship in separation comes in three ways. It, it's divinely imposed. It's automatically imposed. And it may be self-imposed. So let's look at that just a second. When you become a Christian, separation is divinely imposed. Well, what is that? Well, when Christ calls you to the gospel of Christ, he separates you from all the rest of the people in the world. And he puts you into this special class that are his people. Not because of you, we've already discussed that. But you can't deny this, and it's absolutely true, that you are separated out from the world. You're no longer lost. You are a child of God, and you are in this special group. So you're separated. But then you also have, uh, you also have an automatic separation. Now, that, that means that only comes, though, if you're a very faithful Christian, that you automatically are separated, and you're put into a fellowship of others who have been automatically so, uh, separated from the world. Now, Jesus said, you don't have to to do anything, to do this, really, this is automatically happens when you're a faithful Christian and God separates you. Because this is what he says in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And so you're automatically separated from the world when you serve Christ because they don't like you. They don't care anything about you. 
So automatic separation. That's if you're faithfully obedient. If you're not, that doesn't happen. And that's why Jesus said you can't be friends with him and with the world. Now the third separation is definitely one that you do because we see there are so many Christians that are not devoted and they drift back into the world. And when you're in the world, you are out of the fellowship of believers. So this is what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians six seventeen: Wherefore, come out from among them. That's a command. Do this. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, Paul said that to the Corinthian church when they were yoked together with unbelievers in marriage, in business, and in religion. And so if you want to continue in the fellowship of believers, then you can't mix that with the fellowship of the world. So the fellowship of the gospel will separate you divinely. It'll separate you automatically. And it very well will separate you, very well may separate you personally when you're yielded to the Spirit of God. Now, finally... I'll give you this one, and, and this one you're, uh, many of us are all too familiar with. And that is we have fellowship in aggression. That doesn't mean we're mad, angry people. That's not what I mean by aggression. And we have fellowship in election, salvation, supplication, affection, contribution, proclamation, separation, and now finally, aggression. So what am I talking about here? I'm speaking of your spiritual warfare. Because when you join up in the gospel... You get in to the army of the Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth is your commander. And you are in this army that follows him. You take up arms with other believers. Now that's a spiritual warfare, of course, not a physical one. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And then I don't have time really to go into this passage, but in Ephesians chapter 6, you find the the weapons of warfare. And anybody that's true to the gospel of Christ is going to find themselves in the fight of their life. When you join up with the gospel, you become comrades in arms with every other believer who stands for the Lord. I was just thinking about this this afternoon. I was checking out another church's website, a church in Santa Rosa. And uh, I think the second line, the, very, the second line uh, says something like this. God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. When you connect with Jesus, God has a wonderful plan for your life. What did Jesus say about the wonderful plan for your life? Read about it in Matthew chapter 10. Here's what he said about the wonderful plan for your life. And you're supposed to be happy with that wonderful plan. I mean, he's going to make you happy with it. And that's in chapter 10 where he said, you're going to be hated by your father, by your mother. I didn't come to send peace in the world. I came to set people at variance with one another. He said, you're going to be persecuted. He said that you'll stand before kings and governors, etc., etc. And they're going to persecute you. They're going to put you to death. That's a wonderful plan. Isn't that a great message? You go tell somebody, you want to be saved? Here's what's in store for you. It's a wonderful plan God has for your life. It's like the Apostle Paul. I was beaten. I was thrown in jail. I've suffered shipwreck. Uh, In in 1 Corinthians 15, I was thrown to the lions. That's a wonderful plan God has for your life. No, folks, we're in a war. When we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we get into His church and we have fellowship with believers, we are comrades in arms, spiritual arms, with other people who are in a war. We're in a fight. 
And we're going to be in that fight all through our lives. So we don't want to latch on to any kind of theology that talks about, oh, it's all peace and goodness and, and everything's fine and dandy for everybody who becomes a Christian. He's going to take away all of your problems. Everything's going to be gone. And you know, there are a lot of people who come to church. Uh, I'm off the subject. I'm in off my message right now. I'm, I'm just adding some things. But there are people that, 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 that come to church and, and they come here because they think that if they get saved, if they, they see what Christians have, they think all of a sudden that their marriage is going to be great. The marriage is going to be healed and everything will be just fine and dandy from now on. Or, I've got this problem with drugs. Or, I've got a problem with alcohol. As soon as I trust the Lord, that's all going to be gone. Everything's going to be happy. Or, they think, when they hear the message so often today, that if I just become a Christian and I'm just faithful and I plant my seeds, then I'm going to be rich. I'll have everything that I ever wanted just by becoming a Christian. And those people don't stay around very long because very soon they find out that their quasi-profession that they thought they made, it was no good for any of those things. A true confession in Jesus Christ enables you to live through those things. It doesn't enable you to get rid of them all the time. You understand the difference? You can live through it because you know Christ and you can be content in Him no matter what the world throws at you. That's the difference that you get in becoming uh, a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for instance, he was writing to fellow soldiers. When he wrote to the Philippian church, as we're reading here, he's writing to fellow soldiers. When he wrote to the Corinthian church, he was writing to fellow soldiers. And unfortunately, most of them were AWOL most of the time. But uh, that they were, they were fellow soldiers. So he says to the Philippian church, I thank God for you. I thank God for your faith. I pray for you. I joyfully pray for you because we have fellowship in the gospel. So do you see what you become a part of uh, when you become a part of his flesh and bones? Oh, there's a way that all of these things, all of this fellowship is joyful. It contributes to peace and maybe a different type of happiness than you're used to. The contentment, I think, more than happiness, that's what's promised. There is no joy like being in the fellowship of believers. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.